people at large. Here's what holiness looks like for you. I would encourage you as you have time this afternoon uh, to read chapter 19 and 20, in part because some of the things that are mentioned in chapter 18 here are picked up again in chapters 19 and 20, but then there are also some other things that are mentioned that are not covered in 18, and our focus is going to be on chapter 18. So to get a picture of the sort of the holisticness of holiness among God's people, it would be helpful for you if you continued on in your reading to read Leviticus 19 and 20. But that being said, um, I thought that we would spend our time in chapter 18 today because much of what chapter 18 is given to is addressing the issue of holiness as it pertains to sexual morality. And the necessity of covering something like that is all the more critical, particularly in our day and age, because of the fact that there is so much confusion and then outright deceit and contradiction about what sexual purity means even within the church today. There are disagreements and um, varying levels of um, error that has creeped in. So follow along with me in Leviticus 18 and consider how, according to the Lord, if holiness concerns all of life, it certainly concerns our sexual morality. Leviticus 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You will not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall, not uncover, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of, the woman, of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. All of those were commands pertaining to sexual morality within the family construct. Here we move to sexual morality outside of the family construct. Verse 19, also you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled. So that the land will not spew you out, 
should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so, shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as obedient children, would you help us not to shrink back from what you have declared in your word? Would you help us not to add to it, nor to subtract from it? Father, give us the ability not only to understand, but give us hearts that welcome your truth as it's revealed to us, and give us humility and a desire to walk in obedience as we continue to grow in the holiness that is ours in Jesus Christ by your spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Three things that we want to say from Leviticus 18 as we work our way through the passage. The passage breaks up rather nicely into an introduction, verses 1 through 5, then verses 6 through 23, which has the commands that, the, that form the bulk of the chapter, and then verses 24 through 30 provides the conclusion. So we're going to try to track through the, the, the way that the passage unfolds and use that sort of as our, our outline. So, number one, we want to see in the very first paragraph in 18, 1 through 5, that holiness is about covenant loyalty. Holiness is about covenant loyalty. Number two... In verses 6 through 23, we want to see that holiness commands sexual purity. And number three, in verses 24 through 30, we want to see that holiness demands judgment. So, holiness is about covenant loyalty, holiness commands sexual purity, and holiness demands judgment. Look with me at the way that Chapter 18 begins and ends. In verse 2, when Moses is told to speak to the sons of Israel to give them the Lord's instructions, the very first words that he is to relay to the Israelites, to the nation, is the statement, I am the Lord your God. That same phrase is repeated at the very end of the chapter. The very last line of the chapter says the same thing in 1830. Do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. So chapter 18 is framed by this statement, I am the Lord your God. It introduces the commands and it closes the commands. Along with that, if you go through chapters 19 and 20, some variation of that phrase, I am the Lord your God or I am the Lord, some some such phrasing or combination like that, When you count up all the occurrences in 18, 19, and 20, it occurs some 26 times in these three chapters alone, which, by way of repetition, is an indication that one of the keys to understanding or appreciating what the Lord is saying to his people here is wrapped up in that phrase, I am the Lord your God. Now, you could say, and you would not be wrong to say this, that by this statement, I am the Lord your God, what God is declaring is essentially that he is God. And because he's God, whatever he says goes. That is true. That is true. God's people do not need to fully understand why God says what he says or why he would say it this way. The fact that God says it is enough on its own. However, while it is certainly not less than that, God asserting his divine authority, I think it is more than that that he is impressing upon them. The very first time that that exact phrase, I am the Lord your God, the very first time that it appears in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 6. You don't need to turn there right now. But in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, listen as, as I read, The Lord says, I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, 
and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In other words, that phrase, I am the Lord your God, is a way to reveal to the people, to remind the people of who God is, that is, that He is the God who redeems a people for Himself. All of the commands that you have in chapters 18 through 20, being littered with this assertion over and over again, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, is itself a means by which God intends to communicate to His people that your obedience to these commands is not merely because I am God and you must obey God, but because your obedience is the right and natural response to the God who has redeemed you for Himself. In other words, Even in Leviticus, what God is trying to show His people is that holiness through obedience is a grateful response to a gracious God. It is not mere formalism. It is not out of sheer obligation, but considering what God has done for you, the fact that He has bought you and redeemed you and saved you to bring you to Himself, out of joy and gratitude for what He's done, you ought to be all the more willing to say, what says my Lord to His servant? Speak and I'll obey. Because you know the goodness and the wisdom and the love of God. Obedience in chapters 18 through 20 ought to be seen, must be seen, as the right worshipful response of a people who have experienced God's redeeming grace. Let me just say before we move on to to another observation here from this paragraph, if you find it difficult to submit to the Lord in obedience, Could I suggest to you that maybe one of the best ways to work on your heart and to allow the Spirit to work in you and through you is to focus more not so much on yourself but on God and what He has done for you. So the very first thing that we see in the opening of the chapter is that the obedience that God is calling His people to is nothing less than a response to His redeeming work. The second thing that we can say from the introduction is that as these people live like a redeemed people, as they live in response to what the Lord has done for them, they will look different than the rest of the world around them. Verse 3, you will not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what, what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Regardless of where you're coming from or where you're going, so long as your feet are firmly planted on this ground, my people are going to look different than the people around them. It's interesting here that God even describes the customs and the habits of the Egyptians and the Canaanites, the two people that Israel would have known as their own unique statutes. The Lord has His commands and statutes, but so do the other nations. They have commandments and statutes. As you move about in this world, you're going to find that the commands of God, His statutes, His ordinances, the way that He governs His people does not line up with the way that everyone else governs themselves. In fact, you may find that God's commands are in direct contradiction to the commands that society tries to place on its people. What will you do when God's commands run against the commands of culture, the demands of culture and polite society. Well, the Lord says to His people, you will not do what they do. 
And the last thing that we could say from just the introductory paragraph here is that while the people ought to, ought to obey as a simple response to God's gracious redemption, and while they will look different as they walk in obedience and as they grow in holiness to the Lord, it is a sign of the goodness of God, His overflowing goodness to His people, that even in their obedience, what they ought to do, God rewards them for their obedience. Do you see in verses 4 and 5? You are to perform my, st- my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. You are to keep my commands by which a man may live if he does them. Now listen, in the broader context of Leviticus, living is not merely the opposite of dying. There is that, right? The Lord will say more than once through chapters 18 through 20 that the man who disobeys or the woman who violates these commands will be cut off from my people. In some cases, the penalty for disobedience is nothing less than execution. So there is a sense that by walking in obedience to God's commands, you will live physical life. But of course, that's not the, 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 the purpose or the focus of Leviticus. is not merely how to live without dying. All of life in Leviticus is framed or is pictured as life with God. That's the life that you're after. That's the life that you want. It's living with God as you become like God. That is true life. That is fullness of life. So that even here, even in the commands that the Lord gives to His people, the motivation is gratitude for what the Lord has done for them and the promise of reward that I get more of God in my obedience to God. Is this the way that you think about the commands of Scripture? How do you view God when He speaks and when He gives commands to His people? As a tyrant? As an authoritarian, as someone who just comes down with a heavy hand on his people to say, you must do this and you must not do that. As a killjoy? Or have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? That in obeying Him, there is reason to believe that you will not find your life diminished but that you will find your life deepening in meaning and in riches. All of this carries through into the New Testament. This is not just Old Testament thinking. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. What you do with your bodies is your spiritual act of worship. 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the lusts that were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, you shall be holy in all your behavior, for it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Parents, when you teach your kids to obey, grandparents, when you encourage your grandchildren to obey, Is it merely for fear of consequences that you tell them they must obey? Or do you hold out obedience as a pathway to joy? Because in obeying God, I come to know Him more fully and I come to experience Him more purely. Holiness is is the way to life because holiness is the way to God. All of that, then, frames everything that follows. Our obedience to the commands that God gives to His people, even as it pertains to sexual morality, is given to us 
for our good. It's given to us for our joy. It's given to us so that we can know life to the fullest in fellowship with our Creator and our King who has redeemed us for Himself. Now then, number two, holiness commands sexual purity. There are two ways that you could probably break down verses 6 through 23 as it gets to the specific commands. The bulk of the passage actually deals with sexual purity within the confines of the, of the family unit or the family unit and extended family. That essentially goes from, uh, from verse 6 to verse 18. And then in verses 19 through 23, you have sexual purity commands that pertain to life outside of family ties and family bonds. But before we get into just dropping in and looking at a couple of the commands that God gives to His people, both as it concerns the family and as it concerns their life and conduct outside of the family, let's just make a couple general observations here, all right? The fact that Leviticus is calling God's people to holiness, the fact that God commands His people to be obedient so that they can be holy as He is holy, means that as we read Leviticus 18, we have to understand and we have to acknowledge that there is no holiness apart from sexual morality. You cannot claim to have the holiness that belongs to God if you are not sharing in the wholeness that concerns your sexual conduct. Your sanctification and mine is concerned with our sexual morality. Once again, this is not unique to the Old Testament. This is not archaic commands that we have graduated past or moved beyond because we're more sophisticated now. These commands are repeated in the New Testament and expanded upon so that Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you knows how to possess his vessel in honor. That is sanctification. No matter what the world around you may say, and God help us, no matter what even some within the confines of the church may lead you to believe, there is no way that you can make a credible claim to have life with God if you are living in open, persistent sexual sin. No amount of virtue can turn a sin into righteousness. If God has called this act or that act an act of lawlessness, there is nothing that we can do to justify what He says is law-breaking. If He has called it sin, we cannot sanctify it by anything. And if he calls it detestable, we certainly cannot delight in it. All that to say, we ought also to acknowledge that because the Lord speaks very clearly on these issues, that at the end of the day, no matter what we may feel or what we may like or how the Word may fall on our ears, we must submit to the Word of God. We cannot and we will not submit to the spirit of this age. We will not accommodate our life and witness to the cultural sensibilities that shift and change from day to day. And even if the things that God prohibits and forbids we find as creeping desires in our own heart and mind, 
we will certainly not make peace with any sort of sinful desire that would lead us down the path to what the Lord has called evil. So the Lord begins by saying, here's what sexual purity looks like within the family. In verses 6 through 18, Now, one of the things that we want to say right here, even as we start in on the commands that God gives to the family, before we move to commands that pertain to life and conduct outside of the family, and this is very important, so please don't don't miss this. These commands, when you read in the Old Testament law and you consider what Jesus does in His teaching and what the New Testament goes on to do in its teaching for the new covenant people of God, these commands are better understood as a floor rather than a ceiling. You you know what we mean by that? In other words, what God commands here, this is not the pinnacle of what it means to be holy. This is the starting point. This This is basic introductory holiness 101. So, for example, when you look at the laws that God gives concerning purity within the family, you notice that God says there are boundaries in the intimacy and the sexual conduct that family members can have from one another. All of this is predicated on the fact that the institution of marriage, as God created it all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, is one man and one woman living in lifelong fidelity with each other. That's it. That is marriage. There is no other kind of marriage. And because the institution of marriage is one man with one woman, the Lord makes clear that I don't care what the rest of the world and what the rest of society around you is doing. This is the way that you will live with your blood relatives, and even what we would refer to as your extended family, your in-laws. One of the reasons that God does this is because He wants His people to have their loves and their desires rightly ordered. He wants to protect His people from those things that look like they may offer joy and pleasure, but in the end only corrupt and corrode the good gifts that He's given them. Any sexual confusion that you bring into the family will introduce chaos and harm and destruction into that family. Therefore, because God wants His people to enjoy the gift of marriage and family, He says, here are the bounds in which you will enjoy fullness of life with me as you enjoy it with one another. You will not go outside of your wife or your husband. You will guard and protect your children. But all of this is a floor, right? I mean, is that the only thing that God is looking for? Just to make sure that one man isn't going and preying on other members of the family? Or is it more than that? I think it has to certainly be more. It's not just that a husband is to remain sexually pure and faithful to his wife and wife to husband. But that a husband in the New Testament is told, you must love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's holiness. A wife must submit and honor her husband. That's holiness. Children must obey their parents. That's holiness. Parents must instruct their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and do so in a way that they don't exasperate them. That's holiness. And notice all of this through Scripture. 
starting with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant all the way up into the New Covenant as we read in the pages of New Testament Scripture, all of this in some way or another is one of the primary means by which we bear witness to the world that we are different because of Christ. The more this society and culture around us devolves into chaos, the more odd our families ought to look. The more strange they must seem and they must sound. The more out of step they have to be with the habits and the preferences of the world around us. Parents, as you raise children, especially as they get older and you start to have serious conversations with them about the birds and the bees, if you have kids in here, we've wrecked that now, right? As you have these continuing conversations with them, you ought to teach them that one of the reasons that God calls his people to sexual purity is for the maximizing of their joy, not to minimize it. Parents, grandparents, church, hold up to the youth and young adults, the prospect that obeying God and pursuing holiness within the institution of marriage is a way to enjoy one of the greatest blessings that God has worked into his creation and that you can enjoy it with a clean and free conscience with no regrets. Give to your children, give to the children of this church the goodness of God in the holiness of his commands. Outside of the command for holiness as it concerns relationships within the family, there are also commands for holiness as it concerns relationships outside of the family. That starts in verse 19. For our purposes, because we don't have time to go through every one of them, let me pick just two, two that are particularly difficult for us, adultery and homosexuality. In verse 20, God says, You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. Is this a floor or is it a ceiling? It's a floor. At a minimum, you are not to go and take your neighbor's wife. What does Jesus say when he addresses the issue of adultery in his teaching? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, on my authority, I say to you, any man who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And that impulse, that desire, makes you guilty and culpable of falling short of God's holiness. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 19 that except, for, except in the case of immorality, perhaps they're referring to adultery or some other sort of gross immorality, that except in those cases, a man or a wife may not divorce one another for any reason, and that if they do and then are remarried, they commit adultery. Do you hear how what Jesus calls his people to is higher even than the standards that you see in the Old Covenant? As the people of God who have been called to holiness, who have been called to calibrate our consciences by the word of the Lord, not by the word of society or culture, this means that Christians cannot buy into the idea that it is okay for us to participate in no-fault divorce. 
Christ will not have it. It means that not only does Christ call us to fidelity in marriage, it means that He calls us to fidelity in our hearts as it concerns marriage. There is no way that someone who is following Christ, whether man or woman, can entertain fantasies about someone who is not their spouse and think that they are growing in Christ-likeness. Impossible. That is not holiness. God also makes a very clear statement as it concerns homosexuality. Let me just say up front, once again, here's where not only does culture push back, but sometimes well-meaning but misguided people within the church push back in ways that are unhelpful and inaccurate when it comes to Scripture. So let me start by saying this. There is no exception clause anywhere in Scripture as it concerns same-sex behavior. None. There is never a justification for it. There is never an excuse for it. Just like there is never an exception clause for heterosexual immorality. Never. Consent is irrelevant. The notion that so long as you have two consenting adults, all is good, calls God a liar. As a matter of fact, if you continue to read in Leviticus, when you get to chapter 20, it's very clearly stated that in a same-sex act, both parties are held guilty and responsible. It does not matter that they consent. This reality is carried forward in the New Testament in passages like Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll look at in just a moment. Let me also say that not only does God forbid outright any sort of same-sex behavior or activity in the same way that he forbids any kind of adultery or heterosexual immorality, in the same way that even heterosexual temptations are themselves sinful, so are same-sex temptations. There is a, there is a tendency, oh, not, not a tendency, there are some within the church who would say that because I did not want these desires and because I am tempted with them, therefore I'm not responsible for them or I'm not culpable for these desires. I am only responsible for not acting on them. That is not true. These desires that we experience, whether heterosexual or homosexual, if they are not rightly ordered to the loves that God has provided for us, that He has given to us, if they are not ordered in that direction, they are by definition wrong and sinful. These desires that creep up in my heart even when I don't want those desires to creep up in my heart, only goes to show my corrupt, fallen nature in Adam. That desire, whether to envy or covet, whether to lust, whether to lash out in anger, 
Whether I wanted that desire or not, the moment that I recognize it in my heart and mind, the only right response to that desire is to repent of it and to kill it. And this leads us to number three. With all of the commands that God gives concerning sexual purity within the family, outside of the family, making it clear that here is how he expects his people to live as they live in fellowship with him and as they become more like him in his holiness, he is not coy or casual by saying the consequences of disobedience as it concerns sexual morality is judgment. Alan Ross in his commentary on Leviticus makes what I think is a very significant statement. He says, what is truly amazing is that although the moral impurity of this world is perverse and detestable by any simple assessment, the more it is tolerated, the more acceptable and appealing it becomes. Perverse and detestable as it is, the more it is tolerated, the more acceptable and appealing it becomes. And if only for that reason alone, God makes it clear to his people, this is sin that cannot be tolerated because I do not tolerate it. Heterosexual sins within the family or outside of the family. Homosexual sins within the family construct or outside of the family construct. Regardless of what it is, I do not tolerate this sin and I will not give a free pass to people who defy my word. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we ought not to be deceived when it comes to immorality and impurity. That any immoral or impure, or impure person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you, he says, with empty words. For because of these things, these immoralities... These impurities, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. But praise God for Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. This is one of the reasons that the new covenant is better than the old. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot identify yourself as one of these people and think that you also carry dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. But... Look at what he says in verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. For as serious as what sexual immorality is, it is still not the unpardonable sin. 
As with any other sin, anyone who would repent of their sin and turn to Christ can receive a full pardon for all of their sin and all of their immorality. They can be washed clean. If your past is characterized by the perversity and depravity that is described in Leviticus 18, but you are in Christ, your past has no hold on you anymore. And if you're here and you find that within your flesh that some of the very things that God calls detestable are things that you are tempted to delight in, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Although the struggle may be long and hard, the obedience is worth it. The reward is great. And the joys are infinite. Edgewood, we want to be the kind of people who understand that what it means to be a holy people for the Lord is not merely that we put on a holy appearance or a holy air or veneer when we come in on Sunday morning to sing and to pray and to read. But we want to emanate, give the aroma of God's holiness in every sphere of our life. So that the more that society and culture squeezes us, the more that we ooze the holiness of God. Let's pray. Father, according to the mercies that are ours in Christ, we ask that you would continue to wash us by the renewing work of your Spirit with the truth of your Word. Renew our minds so that the things that we see and hear in the world around us do not dull our spiritual senses, that they don't sear our consciences so that we make peace with those things that you are against. Father, forgive us for ways in which we have betrayed our redeeming Lord by making peace with sin. Forgive us, Father, not only for those times in which we violated your commands in our conduct, but for taking your commands lightly in the things that we entertained in our minds and in our hearts. Would you, according to your grace and your good promises, make us as your people more like your son, Jesus Christ, who finds obedience to be better than food? Grow us and sanctify us, we ask, for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name and for his sake we ask this. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask us to stand to our feet at this time as we close with a wonderful song as we sing together as brothers and sisters in Christ. What a fellowship, what a joy divine leaning on the everlasting arms. What a, what a peace is mine leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how 
how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting. What have I to dread? What have what have I leaning? I have leaning. Would you sing it loud to him today? Safe and secure. All alarms leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And our benediction today, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.